International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 5. Dynamic Stories and Three Questions. We're going to talk about linear versus dynamic storytelling. Has anyone heard these terms before? Linear versus dynamic storytelling? Well, basically, uh, children tell linear stories, okay? They say, and then, and then, and then, and then. Linear. I went, I went to the shop, and then I bought a lolly, and then mummy said, you can't have that lolly, which is a reversal, by the way. Um, but I wanted the lolly, and then, and then, and then. They're linear storytellers. And in fact, why are children enchanters is not because of their storytelling, but it's because of their vision of life, the things they put together in life. That's why we find them enchanting, okay? But their storytelling is abysmal. And one of the great thrills in my life is that my uh, son, when he was two and a half years old, started to tell stories dynamically, and no one could believe it. I couldn't believe it. So, um, so not all children tell linear stories, but most of them do. Okay. And what this means is um, when a story is linear, it is flat. It goes along, you know, like this. When it's dynamic, it goes all over the place. It swings to the negative. It swings to the positive. It swings up. It swings down. One minute you're up, one next minute you're down. And you have to tell stories dynamically. If you can't tell stories dynamically, please do not write. There's enough bad writers in the world, okay? And I wanted to, uh, you don't have to turn to this, and I'll just jog through it. Um, I wanted you to think about a story in 2 Samuel, starting at chapter 13. And what this story really is, it doesn't begin with them, but what this story is going to become, the protagonists in this story, are David and Absalom. And it begins... There's always a backstory, and it begins, oops, way before that, when um, Amnon lusts after Tamar, okay? So at the beginning of chapter 13 in the second Samuel, we have Amnon lusting after Tamar, and he goes through this elaborate <coughs> ruse to uh, get hold of her, okay? He uh, pretends he's ill, has her bring him food. She comes, and he rapes her. And it's sort of interesting, psychologically, what happens, which is that uh, she's very distressed, but she says, let's work this out. This has happened. Uh, let's work this out. In other words, let's resolve this. Let's, let's go and go to the king, let, let's deal with this so that we can resolve this. And a very typical situation where lust is involved. Amnon wants nothing to do with her. Okay, he casts her out, he casts her forth. He, um, he, he defiles her but immediately turns his back on her. And um, she goes to Absalom and Absalom seems to listen and not take much notice. 
And then two years later, he organizes a, a situation, a feast, where he has Amnon killed. Okay. So we see this sort of uh, the blood feud. We see, we see the, the pot churning. Um, and it's a great, it's a moral tale. This is about violence always begets violence. Uh, we understand this very well. Uh, so you have to understand that whenever you fight a war in the, in the name of justice, uh, you just beget more violence. Uh, violence begets more violence. You'll see, we see this so clearly in this story as, as Jesus will point to later on. But um, I won't get into that now. But just to see, so the violence starts to stir. He has her killed. He rapes, Amnon uh, rapes Tamar, and then Absalom has Amnon killed. And then um, Absalom flees, and he goes off. And eventually, um, through the good offices of Job, he manages to get back, to come back to the court. Okay? He manages to, to come back to where David is and so on. And, um, and Job is sent to bring him back to Jerusalem. But the, the, the theme of this story, okay, there is a theme. And the theme of this story is, is, is parenthood. What does it mean to be a parent? And what we're going to see in this story is a lousy parent in action, and he's called David. David is typical lousy parent, okay, which we'll see as this story goes through. And that's like the, the theme in the story, okay. And so what happens is he comes back to court, but David has him back but doesn't see him, doesn't do anything, just leaves him out there hanging in the wind, okay. And so for two years, Absalom endures this and deals with this. And, you know, he's sending to Job saying, how can I come in from the cold? How can, you know, my dad, dad won't see me. Nothing goes on here, okay? Typical family dynamics, eh? Uh, in a dysfunctional family. And, um, and then he does a, an interesting thing. Uh, Job won't go to see him. So he sends his, he sends his men to set fire to Job's field. Now, here's a classic example of subtext, okay? So what does he do? He sets fire to Job's field. What's really going on? What do we call that in classic modern terms? We have a name for it. It's called a cry for help. Understand? Sets fire to Job's field, but it's really poor old Absalom crying out for help, saying, help me, do something. I'm lost here. So that gets Job's attention. <laughs> And what then happens is um, Absalom's a good-looking guy. He's very articulate. And eventually, he moves into the affections of the people. Okay? And he then plots against his father, David. Hardly surprising, would you say, given this dysfunctional family. Okay? And um, then eventually... David has to flee. So this story, it sort of ebbs and flows. You can see it moving around. One minute, Absalom's out. Next minute, he's in. Then he's out again. 
Now he's in again. Now he has power and David's on the run. But, as in all great stories, as in life, uh, David has one sort of ace up his sleeve. And he has a spy in Absalom's entourage. Okay? Spy who's right in the core there of the advisors and so on. So he knows what's going on. And eventually, I won't go through this whole story, but this story keeps swinging dynamically. It's a dynamic story. It moves. So David's down, but wait a minute, he's got one ace left, and so on. Dynamic, you see? Swings to right and left. Negative, positive. And um, it eventually ends with uh, Absalom fleeing for his life, and his head, remember, on the ass gets stuck in the branches of the tree. And who kills him? Remember who kills him? Who sticks the javelins in him? Joab. Dear old Joab, he's never forgotten about that field, eh? And then um, David's up on the watch tower, and it's slightly like the good luck, bad luck joke, you know? Here's the good news, uh, we've won. Here's the bad news. Um, your son's dead. And David uh, finally breaks down. Remember that classic Absalom, Absalom, would that I, would that it was me, basically. So the, the bad father paying the ultimate price of being a lousy father. Okay? And this is a dynamic story, isn't it? It's a very moving story. It's very dynamic. Uh, you don't put this story down. Um, okay. Dynamically, uh, the good luck, bad luck uh, joke is, is a very good model. In other words, you know, the man fell out of the airplane. That's bad luck. Uh, the good luck was there was a haystack. The bad luck was there was a pitchfork. The good luck was he missed the haystack, you know, and so on. Because it, it, it swings to the negative and the positive, okay? It's like, uh, it's like a bar stool scenario here, you know? And in, in, in actual fact, when you actually want to tell someone your story, you should... A bar stool scenario is a very good way to do it because um, if you can tell someone a story just sitting there, uh, like that, pitching it the way you would a joke for five minutes, you will know exactly where your story fails, where it succeeds, where they lose interest, and so on. So a great way to tell a, your script to someone is to actually just tell them it as a five-minute story. And just by watching your face, you'll know what's good and what's bad about your story. This is very difficult discipline for the English, who are very reserved. Um, the Americans find it easier. Uh, be that as it may. The other great thing to remember about this, uh, this story form uh, in the visual media is you tell the story on the cut. Okay, you tell the story on the cut. Almost no one knows this in Europe. European films are notorious for not telling their story on the cut. They tell their story within the frame, within the image. They come from a theatrical tradition so they actually have theater and acting it out and the camera following people around and so on. Instead of the cut driving the, uh, the, the story forward, you'll see when we look at the rules for scenes and so on, you'll see that um, in America the rule is 
that you get into a scene as late as you can and you get out as fast as you can. Okay? You tell the story on the cut. And I, I love European films, so there's a balance. You could get a balance between the two, but only if you know which one must rule. And the one that must rule is telling a story on the cut because you want to tell dynamic rather than linear stories. You want to, don't want to tell stories that go all over the mountain, plodding around, you know. I mentioned this word script doctor, and my own, I'll tell you a little bit about my own life just briefly to understand this, is that um, a long time ago, at film, after film school, um, I was in a position in film where people thought I was going to be a hot thing, a hot ticket. And then uh, God called me out of that for 15 years, had to leave film behind. And, um, and during that time, I did one, just one tiny little film, really, uh, that was an exception that we as a community felt I should do. But basically, I did nothing. The only thing I did was script doctoring. People would send me scripts, and if I could fit it in, I would do it. And there were all sorts. There were people who were famous, people who were unknown, and so on. Um, but over that time, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of scripts, hundreds, as I say, from the unknown to the famous, from the tiny to the huge uh, epic screenplays. And what I'm about to say is really important. Because what I would receive often were scripts that were well-written, had well-researched characters, had interesting dialogue, had good descriptions that were sort of literary in many ways. Um, they were interesting. The subject matter was very interesting. Uh, they often had a good central idea. But they had absolutely no story. And it seems unbelievable to me when I actually... If I were to say to you that 99.99% .99 of these films had no story, would you believe that? And these are coming from very established writers as well as unknowns. And th the exception was when I found a story. The total exception would be that, okay? And b believe it or not, um, when I looked at these scripts that were sent to me, I always had to ask three questions that seem incredible when I say them. I say, whose is this story would be the first one. So in 50% of these uh, scripts, it would be totally unclear whose story this was. In fact, it was no one's story. That would be the thing that came out. And then the second uh, thing would be, why should I care? Why should I care about any of these people? And if, by the way, the audience say that, you do understand they've left you. They're gone. If they don't care, uh, that's it. That's the, the end. Okay. And then the most important one was uh, the one which will define story for you is uh, what does the hero want? The great definition of story is X wants Y. X wants Y. If you have a story definition that does not contain the word want, you have no story. Shall I say that again? In your story, if you're in the classic tradition, you have to have a hero, okay? Now, that can be a heroine, and it doesn't mean to say they're an heroic person. It doesn't mean that at all. It means you have a protagonist, uh, and this protagonist has a want, okay? 
And this want has to sustain for the whole film. Okay? So, for example, if you have a hero uh, with a want, and he gets the want after ten minutes, or if he gets the want at the end of Act One, your story has just ended. And you may go on filming, and you may have a film that's two hours long, but all you have is a short film with a long prologue or a long epilogue. And you will probably have just spent $30 million, and your film is going to make about $3 million, $4 million at the box office. And rightly so. You know? Because there's no story. Okay? Your hero wants X, wants Y, and that want sustains for the whole film. I'll give an example. Uh, have a, a wild man I know, a wild friend who used to race racing cars and is always up to nothing good, really. Um, and then he got converted and so on, and he came to me one day and he said, Bart, I've discovered this incredible story. He said, um, the Americans uh, in the Vietnam War spent so much money on training pilots, millions of dollars, that when one was shot down behind enemy lines, they used to send a team in to get them out. And the orders of this team was to uh, exterminate with extreme prejudice. In other words, um, what that means is that the Americans basically were saying, um, this is our investment, we want to protect it. If anything gets in the way, just kill it. Okay, you exterminate. Ah, whether this story is true or not, I haven't got a clue. I'm not telling it to tell you whether this story is true or not. That's not why I'm telling you the story. I'm telling you to show you an example of the story. So he's watching me, how I respond, and I'm listening, saying, yeah. He's saying, do you think you could make a film yet? And I say, well, talk to me, talk to me. So he said, well, I have a friend who's become a Christian, and he was one of the people who they sent in to do this. Do you think we've got a film? And I said, talk to me, talk to me. And he said, well, this man, um, one of his... Uh, sufferings is that he killed over a hundred people just with his hands, never mind what he shot, you know what I mean? Okay? He said, do you think we've got a film? I said, talk to me, talk to me. And he says, uh, but I'm telling you the story. And I said, I've heard no story so far, but talk to me. And he said, well, why haven't you heard a story? I said, because I don't know what he wants. I presume your friend's going to be the hero of your story, but what does he want? Until you tell me what he wants, I, there's no story. Okay? I said, oh, he said. He wants to know if God can forgive him. He said, do we have a story? And I said, no, not so far, but talk to me. <laughs> and he says, well, why don't we have a story? We know what he wants. I said, the want is metaphysical. Now, I'll explain that. In other words, when you have God in a film you have a metaphysical want, okay? And one of the films I'm going to ask you to look at has exactly this scenario where the hero's problem is with God and the film is called Amadeus, okay? Where Salieri's problem is with God. God gave this little twerp Mo Mozart all this talent and Salieri, who 
you know, was the good boy who was the elder brother, you know, as it were, uh, got nothing, got the, the sort of rag ends of talent. Nothing. So the key or the genius of this film, of course, is that God cannot be the opponent. God is the opponent, but he cannot be the opponent. That's a metaphysical opponent. Film is about making what? It's about making the interior exterior. God's useless at that level as an opponent. Do you understand me? No, because I can't show God being the opponent. It's useless. It's metaphysical. So I must incarnate God the opponent, and he's called Mozart. So yes, the opponent is Mozart, but who's given them the talent? God. So in this scene of Vietnam, and he says, but he wants to know if God can forgive him, I'm saying that's too metaphysical for me, for film. He said, well, what would do it? I said, well, if he wanted to know if his girlfriend could forgive him, that would do it. And what you deal with here straight away, as soon as you uh, deal with the incarnation like this, you either deal with utter triviality, utter cliché, or absolute brilliance, okay? And what's going to decide them is not the idea, but how you do the story. Now, it's what's going to decide whether that's going to be a brilliant story or not is, is not the idea. It's actually how it's executed, how you draw characters, how you draw situations, and so on. But what is for sure, okay, is until he actually comes to the hero's want, there's no story, and God as the opponent is a poor opponent in visual media. He's a fine opponent in the novel. And there's a way you can make that work in a different way. It's not great, but you can make it work. So those are my three questions that I kept bumping into, which is, who's the hero? What does he want? Uh, hero, by the way, is a generic. It, 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 it means heroine, hero. It's the tradition, so I'll just, as Patricia says, let's not be sexist about this, but hero is just a shorthand for saying hero, heroine, the protagonist in your story, okay? And then why should I care? Why should I care about this person? And um, I remember uh, people coming to me with a film at a best-selling novel. Uh, they were lining up this film and they had problems with it. And one of the problems with, they had with it was they still didn't really know what storyline they were going with. There were so many possibilities, they just didn't know really what the storyline was. So I didn't have a lot of time, and not a lot of time was needed. So they were saying, um, you know, uh, can we spend three days with you? Can we do this? Can we do that? I said, no, you can come and spend two hours with me, you know, and we can work this problem out. So they came, and what I had them do was just brainstorm off the top of the head all the possible things that the heroine, in this case, could want, the hero could want. And straight off the top of the head, what would be the arc of the story, they brainstormed 46 things inside the first half hour. Okay? So I faithfully wrote them all down. And then I said to them, now, I said, I'm going to read back to you these 46, and you tell me which ones can't be included as a possibility. So we did that, and within the next half hour, we reduced the list to three. Now, how we did that was that we found out that 43 of them 
the heroine actually got within the first half hour of the film. So the film ended there. Do you see what I mean? So these could not be storylines. These didn't go right through the film. Okay? So they're left with three, and then from those three, it was pretty obvious which they needed. Okay? So it was no big deal, but just that little craft, that little understanding of story meant that they could work out what their problem was. And the very first question is, um, who is driving the story? Who's going to drive the story? And how a story is driven, okay, is who makes the decisions? Who acts? Who acts as opposed to reacting, okay? Because in uh, film, in the visual media, decision and action are always the same thing. Action is decision, uh, and decision is action. If someone doesn't act, it just means they haven't decided, they haven't chosen. It's very biblical, this, by the way. Again, it's Semitic, okay? It's not like us in our Greek tradition where we can, ha we can say, I believe in God and do nothing about it, live, live like this. Or we can say, yes, yes, I believe we're baptized into the Trinity. As Patricia was saying, I believe, yes, we were baptized into the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that we are taken into the Trinity at our baptism. But I'm going to live an individual life. That's Greek. Jesus didn't, wouldn't have understand that. He said, if you believe you're in the Trinity, that you have one life in me in the Trinity, your life is my life. And if I don't live that, I live nothing. It's very hard for us to grasp, uh, given the culture we've been brought up in. Okay? It's very hard to grasp that your life is my life. And I only live the life of the Trinity by truly believing that, by living that, and being prepared to give to you whatever I need to give to you as having one life with you. 